everything that's done in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> I'm going to start this morning in Genesis chapter 1. A verse of scripture that I hope you're all familiar with. Uh, you certainly should be. In the creation account, as is recorded in Genesis, chapter 1, verse 26, God said, after he's made everything else, God said, let us make man in our image and after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and, upon every, and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him, male and female created he them. And God blessed them, and God said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply, and replenish the earth, and subdue it. Notice that, and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. God put man in a position where he was the master of his creation, the master of God's creation. And that mastery is specifically identified as authority. I know some people get nervous about when you use these terms, but literally God made Adam to be the God of this world. That doesn't mean Adam was equal in God in all of his power, but God made man in his own image and after his own likeness. If you look up those words in the Hebrew, you'll find that it means he made an exact duplicate of himself. An exact duplicate of himself. And God gave authority to man here on the earth. He didn't say, if you have problems, come tell me or pray to me about it. He said it was the responsibility of man to subdue the earth, to have dominion over it. In other words, to keep it under your control. Well, we know what happened. Genesis chapter 3 tells us about how Satan came on the scene and deceived them. talked them into misusing their authority and when God finds out about it he decrees a curse several curses as a matter of fact because now the law of sin and death is ruling over mankind but what did he curse God said there was a curse upon the ground the ground would now bring forth thorns and thistles something that were, was far into the earth and man's knowledge up to that point. He placed a curse upon the woman and talked about how the seed of the woman would defeat the enemy, defeat Satan. But where in that curse did God say, you lost your authority? Where in the things that God decreed that would be different did God say, mankind has lost his authority? Now, folks, if man lost his authority and God didn't tell us, then we can make an accusation against him. But he didn't. He didn't say one word about losing authority. Because the fact of the matter is, and Satan doesn't want you to know this, but you and I have authority here on the earth even now. The earth operates differently than it did for Adam and Eve before the fall. There are calamities and natural disasters and things like that. Things that are often called acts of God. But they're not acts of God. God doesn't kill or destroy anybody. Or bring destruction on anybody for any reason whatsoever. Destruction is the devil's territory, not God's. And so man still has authority. We know that Satan doesn't have ultimate authority. You know, the Bible tells us that there's only one way that Satan operates, and that's by deception. We certainly see that to be the case in Adam and Eve's situation. And the devil can only lie and attempt to deceive mankind to misusing or fail to use their authority here on the earth. That's all the devil can do. If you look at the, the story, read the story, he has to talk Adam and Eve into disobeying God. 
That's the only weapon he has is deception. It's the only weapon he has. Now, the devil's a liar, and he lies about a lot of things. But there are four main things that he works overtime to lie about. The first is, the devil lies about himself. He wants you to think that he's got a lot more power than he does. He wants you to think that he can make things happen, bad things happen, just at his whim. But let me ask you a question, folks. We know that Jesus said in John chapter 10, he said, the thief comes not but for to kill, to steal, and to destroy. In other words, the devil's main purpose is to kill, to steal, and to destroy. If the devil's running things, why didn't he just make a massive earthquake take place to wipe out everybody? If the devil is all-powerful and he can use hurricanes and tornadoes and things like that, why didn't he just do all that at one time, unleash all of his power once and for all and destroy everybody that's here on the earth? Why didn't he come up with some kind of disease, killer disease, that has a 99% death rate and kill everybody off at once? Why doesn't he do those things? Is it because he's really our friend and he's just holding back on these terrible things? Folks, if he could do it, he would do it. Now, he doesn't want you to know that. He doesn't want you to know that he is limited in his ability to operate here in the earth. He doesn't want you to know that the only way he can operate against us is the same way he operated against Adam and Eve. And that is talk them into misusing their authority. That's all he's got. That's all he can do. The next thing the devil lies about is he lies about who God is. A part of that is lying about the consequences of our actions. God told Adam and Eve in the day that they eat of the fruit of the tree, the forbidden tree, they would surely die. We weren't talking about physical death because they didn't die physically. They died 930 years, Adam died 930 years after that point in time. But the death he was talking about was spiritual death, the law of sin and death. Well, Satan came along knowing after Eve had told him what God said about death being the consequence of disobedience. The first thing he said is, you wouldn't die. You are not really going to die. But they did. The next thing the devil lies about is he lies about you. He doesn't want you to know who you are. He works overtime trying to make sure you don't find out who you are. That you don't find out the reality of the authority that God has given mankind. Because if you don't know, you can't use it. So he works overtime trying to keep you from knowing who you are in Christ and what belongs to you. Turn with me over to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7, I want to read the last two verses in the chapter, verses 8, 28 and 29. It said, and it came to pass when Jesus had ended these things, he just concluded the Sermon on the Mount. It came to pass when Jesus had ended these things, the people were astonished at his doctrine. The word doctrine is, is the word teaching. They were astonished at his doctrine. Now notice it doesn't say they were astonished at him. It said they were astonished at his doctrine. They were astonished at the things that Jesus taught them. For, here's what he taught, verse 29, he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Now I'm reading from the King James, and if you're reading there as well, do you notice that the word one, O-N-E, is in italics? Anytime the translators, uh, anytime the translation has a word in italics, it means the translators added it. Hope, hoping to add to our understanding. But in this case, it doesn't fit. Because what it really says in the Greek 
It says, for he taught them as having authority and not as the scribes. You look up those two words, have, the two words as and having. The word as is a word that refers to the manner in which something is done. Or in other words, how. The word having means to hold or to take hold or to seize something. So they were astonished at his doctrine for he taught them how to hold or how to have or how to seize authority and not as the scribes. We looked, if you were with us last week, we looked at four examples in the New Testament where four different gospel writers identified the authority that God has given to man. The first is Jesus in Luke chapter 10, verse 19. He's talking to the, the 70 as they come back having finished their ministry campaign that he sent them on. And they're overjoyed because of the results that took place when they used the name of Jesus. Even evil spirits came out of people, and that wasn't part of what Jesus said to do with it. There's no mention of, of delivering people or casting out devils in the instruction that he gave them earlier in the 10th chapter of Luke. And Jesus explains that it's because Satan is a defeated foe. He said, I beheld Satan fall as lightning from heaven. Now, he's not talking about that happening when the disciples used the name or exercised their authority in the name of Jesus. He's talking about something that happened long before the Genesis account of creation took place. But then he said, behold, I give unto you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. And nothing shall by any means hurt you. Folks, you have authority on this earth to keep from harm, to be free from harm in any and every way. The devil sure doesn't want us to know that, does he? Paul was also one that wrote about our authority in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 26 and 27. It says, be angry and sin not. Neither give place to the devil. Don't let the sun go down on your wrath. Neither give place to the devil. Now, if we're going to keep the devil from having any place, that automatically means we have to have authority over him. Because it's our choice, it's our decision, it's our action that determines whether the devil has any place in our lives or not. It's not even God's position. It's not even up to him. It's up to you and me. Then James and Peter tell us basically the same thing to humble ourselves before the Lord and to resist the devil and he will flee from us. We'll talk a little bit more about those two in just a few minutes. But folks, it's, in, it's vitally important that we know how the devil operates that we know how he brings deception to us, how he tries to deceive us, so that we can stand against it and exercise our authority in a different way. Now, I want you to look with me again at these scriptures. They were astonished at Jesus' doctrine or his teaching, for he taught them as having authority, or how to hold authority, or how to seize hold of authority, and not as the scribes. What does that look like? Back up with me to verse 24. Jesus said, Therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them, I will liken him unto a wise man which built his house upon a rock. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat upon that house, and it fell not, for it was founded upon a rock. And everyone that heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them not shall be likened unto a foolish man which built his house upon the sand. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat upon that house, and it fell. And great was the fall of it. So Jesus is saying our attitude toward the word, the, the process that comes as a result of our exercising our will and our determination to give the word first place in our lives and to allow the word of God to dictate what we say, what we think, what we believe, and what we do. He said that's the thing that keeps us from being overtaken or destroyed by the storms of life. Notice the same storm comes to both people. 
the wise and the foolish. The only question is, what damage does a storm do to your life? And he says that that's based on the Word of God. Now, what does that look like? Well, if you remember over in Matthew chapter 4, it tells us about Jesus being tempted of the devil. How did Jesus handle this? How did Jesus, obviously he's a uh, wise man, fits the description of the wise man that builds his house on the rock. What does he do? How does he operate? Thank God there's a record of it given to us for an example. And every time Jesus is faced with a temptation, it's Satan doing the same thing with Jesus that he did with Adam and Eve. The only weapon he has is to try to deceive and therefore influence, in this case, Jesus to use his authority in a way other than what God gave it to us for. Satan can't do anything to him on his own. He has no place in Jesus because there is no sin in Jesus' life. So he's left with trying to talk Jesus into doing things that he wants him to do. The first thing he tempted him with is he said, if you're the son of God, command these stones to be made bread. And Jesus answers and says, it is written. In other words, Jesus takes the temptation before him, the circumstances that are set before him, and he allows the word of God, through his knowledge of the word, he allows the word of God to dictate whether or not he will take the actions that the devil is trying to tell him to. If you're the son of God, command these stones to be made bread. Jesus said it's written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Now, folks, is God against Jesus eating? Jesus has just concluded a 40-day fast in the wilderness. And here comes the devil at his weakest point. He's at the point where his body is just about to shut down. It's either feed me now or that's it. But Jesus sticks with the word. God sent him out in the wilderness to fast for those 40 days. So he leaves it up to his heavenly father to determine what shall be done for him and whether or not he shall make it through. It tells us after the, after the temptations were ceased that the angels came and ministered to him. Maybe they made him a cake over hot coals like, he did, like they did for Elijah. But then the devil tempts Jesus again. He takes him up to the pinnacle of the temple, the highest point of the temple mount. And he says, if you're the son of God, cast yourself down from this wall. Because the angels, the Bible says, will bear you up in their wings lest you dash your foot against a stone. Here's the devil quoting scripture. You need to know that he can do that. But Jesus does the same thing because his life is built on the foundation of God's word. He answers, it's also written, thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. Then the third temptation, Satan shows him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. He said, I'll give you the glory of all these kingdoms if you'll fall down and worship me. Jesus rejects that in the same way that he rejected the other two temptations. He said, get thee behind me hence, for it is written, thou shalt worship the Lord and him only shalt thou serve. So the exercise of authority that the people are astonished at that Jesus is teaching them is taking the word of God at face value and applying it to your life no matter what circumstances come against you. Now turn with me over to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. We'll start in verse 3. Paul's writing by the Spirit of God and says, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. Mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. 
This word stronghold means fortress or, or castle. And it's saying that we have to or we should remove the strongholds that are in our lives so that we can access the power of God, the blessings of God, the works of God, and apply them to our lives. Now, where are these strongholds? I know a lot of times people talk about prayer as being something that we need to enter into to break the power of the devil over our city. I remember many years ago, there was a certain minister that was very popular at the time. And his ministry at that point in time focused on praying the Lord's Prayer or praying for an hour. And so he was holding prayer meetings all over the country. And he would come in, he and his ministry team would come in and gather as many people as they could at their meetings and pray to pull down the strongholds of the devil over their cities. And they would specify certain crimes, murders, and so forth, and pray specifically against those things. Well, I noticed I wasn't part of the operation, so I'm watching things from afar. But I noticed that the year after they left, we had more murders than we had before. So that prayer didn't work. I noticed that the same level of corruption and crime in other areas were the same as they were before the prayer meetings and the ministry operation took place. So we can't say that that one worked either, at least not in the short term. Now, folks, I'm not throwing rocks at anybody. But if we're doing something that doesn't work, why do we want to keep doing it? I want you to notice that these strongholds that Paul talks about pulling down are in your mind. Not over cities, but in your mind of the individual. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, not earthly, but spiritual, and mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations. Casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God and bringeth into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. Now, folks, here's what this means. Remember, the devil has only one way to operate, and that's through deception. So here's how the devil operates. He tells you a lie from any number of sources, through any number of people. He tells you a lie and continues to tell you a lie and then brings about circumstances in your life that seem to support the lie that he's telling and over a process of time, it creates a stronghold, a barrier in the mind of the individual that keeps God's word from having an effect on them, that keeps God's word from producing what the word was sent to produce. If we could look at our own minds in this way, we would see little fortresses all, all through our thinking. Now, folks, the fortresses, a fortress or a castle will either keep people out or they'll keep people in. When the devil, where the devil is concerned, he wants fortresses to be built up in your mind so that the truth of God's word never breaks through. So that you never come to the place where you realize who you are in Christ and what belongs to you. And God himself can't take down those fortresses. God himself cannot pull down those strongholds. The reason for that is because you're the one that has authority, not him. This certainly fits with what Jesus said in John chapter 8. He was talking to a group of people that believed in him, believed that he was Messiah. And he said, if you continue in my word, then are you my disciples indeed. So you've got a difference between believers and disciples. Believers are those who have accepted the truth of Jesus for the forgiveness of sins and have entered into the family of God. But disciples are ones that continue in the word. 
You can be a, a believer and never become a disciple. Or you can become a believer and become a disciple in certain areas. But not in every area. It's all up to the choice of the individuals. The will of the individual rules and reigns paramount. So Jesus said, if you continue in my word, then are you my disciples? And you shall know the truth, and the truth will make you free. The continuing in the word, the reformatting of your thinking, the renewing of your mind, will bring about a place where you are set free. Now, you know as well as I do that people have various degrees of freedom. Some Christians are free in one area that other Christians are not free. And the other one may be free in an area that the first one wasn't. But the important thing is that we need to know what the Word says about our situation so that we can walk free in Christ. Now, I mentioned that we spoke last week and identified four areas where the New Testament tells us that we have authority over the devil. We spoke to two of them specifically, Jesus in, John, in uh, Luke chapter 10 and Paul in Ephesians chapter 5. But I want you to look with me to what Peter and James said now. I'm going to start in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5. Likewise, you younger, submit yourselves unto the elder. Yea, all of you subject one to another and be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud and gives grace unto the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. Casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. Be sober. Be vigilant. The word sober, the root word for the word sober means don't be moved by emotion. Be sober and be vigilant because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, doesn't say he is one. It says he's like one. Now, what's a roaring lion like? He's pretty loud. Doesn't talk about the lion's teeth. Doesn't talk about the sharpness of his claws. It talks about the noise that he makes. And folks, that's the only thing the devil can do is make noise. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. Notice it doesn't say who he can devour, it says who he may devour. The word may is a word of permission. In other words, he makes a lot of noise for the purpose of influencing you to give him permission to take over or take place, take hold of something in your life. Seeking whom he may devour. So what are we to do? Verse 9, whom resist steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. Now, folks, if you don't have authority over the devil, it wouldn't make any sense or it wouldn't make any difference whether you resisted him or not in faith. It says resist him steadfast in the faith. If we didn't have authority over him, then what good would resisting him do? Is it just going to prolong our agony? Look with me to James chapter 4. We'll start in verse 6. But he giveth more grace, wherefore he saith, God resists the proud, but gives grace unto the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Did you notice that in both cases, both what Peter said and what James said, it talks about humbling yourself before the Lord? God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. What does God consider to be humility? I know what the church considers humility to be. To be so beaten down in mind and spirit that you think yourself to be nothing. God is everything. I'm nothing. That's what the church has taught humility to be forever. You know what humility is as far as God's concerned? It's you accepting to be true what the Bible says 
about you. Since the Bible says you have authority over the devil, over all of his power, and nothing shall by any means hurt you, then it means by definition we are to believe that we have authority over the devil, that our authority is greater than his power. Humility means to accept to be true what the Bible says about you concerning righteousness. The devil wants you to think that you're not worthy. He wants you to think that you're not worthy to receive his power to deliver you, to set you free, to heal you, to prosper you, whatever. But the Bible says that God loves you just like he loves Jesus. You can't find one place where it says that God loves Jesus more than you. But you can find a bunch of places where the Bible talks about us being joint heirs together with Christ. You can find a lot of places, particularly from what Jesus said, that God loves his disciples just as much as he loved him. Now, folks, it's humility to believe that to be true. Basically, everything that the church world calls arrogant, God calls humility. The Bible says, come boldly to the throne of God. You can't come boldly to the throne of God and not know who you are. A lot of people try to do it, but it fails. You are worthy to receive the greatest miracle that's ever occurred. Now, the devil wants you to think that you're not. He wants you to think that you're just a poor sinner, unworthy to stand in, the, in God's presence, and that you should just be satisfied with your sins being forgiven because one day you'll get to heaven, and then one, when that day comes, because we won't have sin-tainted bodies, then you'll be worthy. Well, folks, what about heaven changes the blood of Jesus? See, if you get into heaven is a prerequisite to you really being righteous, not just being called righteous, but really being righteous, then here's what that means. That means the blood of Jesus was not sufficient to do the work on its own. If your location is required for your righteousness, then your righteousness was not completely furnished and purchased by Jesus' blood. You are worthy not only to receive the greatest miracle that's ever occurred, but you're worthy to be used by God to bring about the greatest miracle that has ever occurred. Folks, Jesus knew who he was. And he knew who the devil was. And he knew who God was, his father God was. Jesus had two purposes here on the earth. One was to maintain a, a sinless life to be a worthy sacrifice for us. And the other, the second job that he had was to reveal the Father to us. And what did Jesus reveal to us of, of our Father? That God wants for you the same things here on the earth that he wants for you in heaven. God's not going to love you more when you get to heaven. You are who the Bible says you are. You can do what the Bible says you can do. You can be who the Bible says you are. So what are we to do? Well, back to what Paul said. God intends for us to pull down these strongholds Casting down imaginations. Casting down imaginations. Where do these imaginations come from? Well, if they create these strongholds, then those imaginations have to come from the devil. And every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. That means every thought, every impression, 
has to be examined and compared to the word of God. That's what Jesus did when the devil came to tempt him. He took what the devil said and compared it to what the word said and spoke the word. And it kept sin from ever gaining an advantage over him. That's how to build your house on the rock so that it won't fall. Now turn with me to Proverbs chapter 4. Proverbs chapter 4, beginning in verse 20. My son, attend to my words. Incline thine ear to my sayings. Let them not depart from thine eyes. Keep them in the midst of thy heart. For they are life unto those that find them and health to all their flesh. Notice what the Holy Spirit is telling us through the writer of Proverbs to do and how to operate concerning the word of God in our lives. He said, my son, attend to my words. Incline thine ear unto my sayings. He seems to be implying that there are other things that are going to come against us to try to draw our attention to something else. Other voices. Paul said there are many voices in the world and none are without signification. In other words, Words always signify something. So he says we're to incline our ears to his saying. In other words, listen to what the word says above anything and everything else. Let them not depart from thine eyes. That means see yourself with what the word says is yours. Keep them in the midst of thine heart. How do you keep the word in the midst of your heart? Well, the heart is talking about the spirit. Paul said, we believe, we having the same spirit of faith, we believe and therefore speak. So just as God spoke the worlds into existence, just as God speaks his word to his children for the purpose of us gaining whatever that word promises, in the same way, we're to keep them in our hearts. The way you keep the word in your heart is you keep saying it. Remember what God told Joshua. Joshua chapter 1 verse 8. This book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth. This book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth. In other words, keep saying it. For the purpose of meditating therein. That you may observe to do according to all that's written therein. For then you shall make your way prosperous and then you shall have good success. It doesn't even say God will bring you good success. It doesn't even say God will prosper you. It says you through your exercise of authority through the words of your mouth will bring prosperity and success to your life. Folks, what you look at is everything. Let me contrast two situations. The first is in Numbers chapter 21. It tells us that the children of Israel went a certain way when they were wandering in the wilderness and even though they were they forfeited what God's plan was for them concerning the promised land God still took care of them they still defeated their enemies and he provided for them but they came to a place they had just had a major battle and won a major victory and they came to the place where they wanted to cross through the land of Edom and the king of Edom refused them passage so the people started, it says they were discouraged by the way. They had to go a long way out of their way from point A to B. And so they began to speak against God and against Moses. And as a result, the, the uh, uh, protecting power of God was lifted from them. And the wilderness, where the Bible says were many poisonous fiery serpents, poisonous snakes, those snakes came into the camp. Now, for the 40 years they were in the wilderness, the only snake outbreak they had was when they spoke against God and against Moses. Some people want to look at how the King James says that God sent those snakes into the camp. That's a, a permissive term that's translated in the causative sense. But literally, God's hand of protection was lifted from them for a period of time. And a lot of people died from these snake bites. So they went to Moses, knowing full well their own role in this 
calamity. They spoke to Moses and said, we repent. We spoke against God and we spoke against you. But now entreat the Lord on our behalf that these fiery serpents would be taken from us. So God told Moses what to do. He said, make a serpent of brass and put it on a pole. And lift it up before the people. He said, whosoever looketh upon it shall live. Now there's a lot of places in the Bible that talk about the contrast between the things that we can see and the things we can't see. We know that this natural world, this physical existence that we have, this planet, was created by the spirit realm. For God is a spirit and he created it. That means the unseen realm, the spirit realm, is more real than the physical realm. That's hard for us to wrap our heads around. But if we're going to walk in humility, we're going to have to accept what God said to be true no matter how we feel about it. No matter what the devil tries to lie for the purpose of influencing us to do or to think or to act. So God told Moses to put this serpent of brass. It wasn't a lamb, which would have been representative of Jesus. But it's a serpent of brass. Jesus identified that this was a type of himself in John chapter 3. In about verse 16. Uh, I'm sorry, about verse 15. Jesus said, as Moses lifted the serpent of brass in the wilderness, so shall the Son of Man be lifted up from the earth. So it tells us that the serpent of brass then was a type of Jesus on the cross. And the condition was, everybody that looks upon it shall live. Now the word that's used in the Hebrew language for look, or it's translated looketh, it means a steady and consistent gaze. In other words, it wasn't something you just look over and glance at and then go about your business. It was something you looked at and kept your attention focused on. Now, why was that significant? Because the snakes were still at their feet. And folks, that may be representative of the way a lot of us are living this part of our lives. We may be in a situation, a hard time, a troubled time, where there's all kinds of things going on around us. But deliverance comes by keeping your eyes fixed on him. Not just him as a man, but what is death on the cross signified. Now, a serpent is always an illustration of death or Satan himself. How did Jesus identify with that? The Bible says God made him to be sin who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Jesus was made sin on the, on the cross. Jesus took upon himself the nature of death which is the nature of Satan himself. I know a lot of people don't like to think in those terms, don't like to recognize that. But folks, only to the degree that Jesus really became sin did you really be made righteous. If it was just symbolic for Jesus to be made sin, then that means your righteousness can only be symbolic because he created... He, took place, took part in the first act so that the second act could be true. Jesus was made to be sin. He knew no sin. So God had to make him to be sin for the, uh, for the sake of the whole world. So Jesus identifies himself with the serpent on the pole. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so also must the Son of Man be lifted up. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever should believe on him should not perish but have everlasting life. So they were required to keep their attention, their look, fixed on the serpent on the pole. 
no matter what else is going on around them, no matter if a snake crawls across their foot, no matter what else might be taking place, they were required to fix their gaze on that which represents Jesus. Now here's the other contrast. Romans chapter 4 talks about Abraham believing in the impossible, believing for the impossible to have a child, Isaac, after he was too old to have children, after he and Sarah were all, all both too old to, have, to uh, give birth. How did Abraham, who for 24 years before, who did not receive the promise, how was he able at the advanced age of 100 and Sarah to be 90, how were they enabled to receive the power of God to have the child of promise? The Bible tells us very specifically that Abraham looked under the promise of God. In other words, he did just like the people were required to look at, gaze intently on the serpent of brass on the pole. In the same way, Abraham fixed his gaze on the promise that God made to him. And he refused to look away. Looking under the promise of God, he staggered not through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God. What makes strong faith? Well, in Abraham's case, it's looking only under the word. That fits what we see here in Proverbs chapter 4. Let my words not depart from before your eyes. Keep them in the midst of your heart. What strongholds are holding you back? Jesus made some tremendous statements. Statements that we think to be beyond our ability. But he said things like, he that has seen me has seen the Father. You know that's true for you too? People that see you see the Father. Now whether or not they see what you want to see, them to see of the Father might be under debate or might be room for discussion. But because God's life is in you, people that see us see the Father. Jesus said things like, I always do those things which please my father. The Lord challenged me several years ago to start saying that. And it made a huge difference in my relationship with God. Because I realized even though the devil wanted to tell me where I failed and where I came up short, those failures were not of my heart. From my heart, I did then and do now and will always desire to do only the things that please my Father. God knows where our flesh is weak. He knows where we trip and fall and stumble along the way. But it doesn't change the attitude of our hearts. The reason that we feel under conviction when we do fall short is because from the inside, from the spirit of man, from our own hearts, we always want to do the right thing. And that's what God sees. God sees the inward man who looks on the heart instead of the outward appearance. He that has seen me has seen the Father, Jesus said. Jesus showed us God's attitude toward mankind. It's amazing that Jesus didn't chew people out any more than he did. And really the only ones he ever did were the hypocrites, the, uh, the Pharisees, the religious leaders. But Jesus never held sin against anybody. Again, it's because he was a man subject to the like passions and temptations and adversities as we are. He was in every way tempted. So he's touched with the feelings of our infirmities. 
And you never find him holding sins against anybody except the Pharisees. And the only reason he held their sins against them is because they denied their sins and claimed to be doing the right thing. You can't ever find a place in the New Testament where it identifies or points out somebody's sin for any purpose other than just creating a story where God's mercy is shown to be evident. Not one place. That doesn't mean the people didn't commit sin. It means that because of the blood of Jesus, it's not what God sees. So Jesus uses examples of things that seem way beyond our reach. When in fact, if we're going to be humble and submit ourselves, humble ourselves before the Lord God himself, that means we're going to have to accept what the Bible says to be true about us, no matter how it makes us feel. The devil wants, you to, uh, wants to tell you that you're a liar when you say you're the righteousness of God in Christ. Well, is that a lie? It can't be a lie if God said it. And that's what he said. My son attended to my words. Is there anything in your life that's more important than the word of God to you? If so, you've got an adjustment to make. And making that adjustment will pull down one of those strongholds. See, if the devil can keep you from knowing the truth of who you are and what power you have through the name of Jesus, then he can keep you under his thumb here on the earth. But on the other hand, if you resist him steadfast in your faith, faith is always based on the word of God. So that would mean you would have gained knowledge or will exercise yourself to gain knowledge about who you are and what belongs to you. Then the devil loses ground. He loses a foothold to bring destruction into your life. Jesus said things like all things are possible to them that believe. You know what I believe? I believe God's word is true no matter what we encounter, no matter what we face. But here's something else I believe. I believe that as we begin pulling down those strongholds, those fortified positions of the enemy in our own thinking, and accept instead the truth of what God's word says. I believe that the impossible becomes more than just a possibility. As those strongholds are removed. In other words the reason why some things seem to be impossible for us. Is because of those strongholds that the devil is exercising. Or trying to defend. Now there is no defense against the truth of the word. So all we have to do is find out what the truth of the word is instead of what we think or what we have thought in the past. And then the impossible becomes possible. Paul talked about being transformed by the renewing of your mind. To be transformed. What is it for the Christian to be transformed? is to be turned into another man is to be turned into a God man and not just a mere man if we had any idea the power that the righteousness of the blood of Jesus has brought to our being has impacted and imparted to our hearts and lies available to bring restoration to our flesh. If we could really see those things as they are, there's nothing the devil could do to stop the church in any way or in any capacity whatsoever. 
But it's up to us. God gave us authority. These things aren't just going to fall on us like ripe cherries off a tree. We're going to have to apply ourselves. We're going to have to identify our lives. Take an open-minded look at our lives to see where we are falling short of what God's Word says belongs to us. And make the adjustment to change our thinking to what God's Word says other than the way that we normally think. Jesus came to the Pharisees on one occasion and they were questioning him about keeping the law. And Jesus said, you make the word of God of none effect by your traditions. Now I want you to think about that for a minute, folks. The word of God is the most powerful thing in the universe. The word of God will stand and remain when this universe is over and empty. There's nothing more powerful than God's word. It cannot be stopped. It cannot be changed. It cannot be altered. It cannot fail to produce in the right conditions. But he said the Pharisees had stripped the word of God of its power by their traditions. That word tradition means reasonings. In other words, their thinking Rob them of the true power of God's word. Well, if it, could do, if it could do that for the Pharisees, it could do that for us too then, right? You have made the word of God of none effect by your reasonings. By your thinking, you have made the word of God devoid of power. Can you see why it's important to, to bring down those strongholds? to bring every thought into the obedience of Christ, every thought to be judged by what the Word says instead of what we just normally thought in times past. It's impossible to be strong in faith if you're not strong in the knowledge of the Word. You can't believe right if you don't think right. You can't be a strong Christian without thinking right. But thinking right, thinking according to what God's word says about him, about his son Jesus, and even about yourself, will bring you to a place where Satan has no place in you whatsoever. It is an attainable goal. It's not even a difficult thing. We just have to be willing to do the work to find out what we need to think instead of what we've always thought. There's a transformation awaiting each one of us as we renew our minds to the Word. Let me read you a couple of scriptures from Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 54, verse 14. In righteousness shalt thou be established. In other words, the knowledge that you have of being made righteous by the blood of Jesus. Not just accepting that to be true, but to consider and to accept what the Bible says about what has happened to you and me. In righteousness shalt thou be established. Thou shalt be far from oppression, for thou shalt not fear. And from terror, for it shall not come near thee. Folks, there's a place in righteousness, the understanding of righteousness, that does away with fear of what the devil's going to do to you. I remember when I first started re trying to renew our mind, my mind to some of these things, the devil would make all kinds of threats. I don't even hear the threats of the devil anymore. That doesn't mean he leaves me alone because I'm some spiritual giant. 
But the voice of the devil is such a small voice now. There's no roaring like a lion in the things that I've become established in. Now, that's not to say I don't still have to do some work in some other areas because we never will arrive. But there's a freedom from fear. And what the devil can't make you afraid of, he can't bring to pass in your life. In righteousness shalt thou be established. Thou shalt not be far from oppression, for thou shalt not fear. And from terror, for it shall not come near thee. Verse 17, no weapon that is formed against thee shall prosper. And every tongue that shall rise against thee in judgment thou shalt condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their righteousness is of me, saith the Lord. Now notice how he connects those things. He connects no judgment, no condemnation against you, that righteousness is your heritage, and your righteousness is of him. Oh, and by the way, no weapon formed against you shall prosper too. Most people want to start on the front part of that verse and work backwards. They want to make sure that no weapon forms against them shall prosper. But the way that we get to the place where weapons don't prosper against us is when we understand who we've been made in Christ Jesus. I remember when I first started confessing that I was the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. I'd go into my bathroom and shut the door and look at myself in the mirror and make that confession. And I made it with weakness and trembling in my voice because I didn't think that to be true. I knew me, but I didn't know me in Christ. Now it's fun to say, and whenever the devil tries to say, well, you're not righteous, don't you remember over here the other day where you messed up? That's where the knowledge of righteousness really takes over. Because we can say in the face of our failures, in the face of our shortcomings, I'm not righteous because I never miss it. I'm righteous because of the blood that Jesus shed. And that's what pleases the Father. The thing that pleases God the Father is when we recognize who we are because of what His Word says and not even because of our own experience. See, if we were able to say, yeah, I've got it made, I haven't committed a sin in 10 years, then we would be judging our righteousness based on our own activity, based on our own actions. But we're not righteous because we never miss it. We're righteous because Jesus shed his blood. And there's a transforming power to that. It'll change everything about your life. It'll change how you look at yourself in not only in that area, but other areas too. We are the righteousness of Christ in, in him. We are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. We're not just going to be someday. We are now. And no weapon formed against us shall prosper. Because we have authority over the power of the devil. And as we speak God's word, as we meditate on God's word and put it in practice in our lives, we come to the place where no storm of life can take us under or destroy us. Absolutely nothing. We've been given authority over all the power of the devil. And nothing shall by any means hurt us. That's who we are as children of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your word is true and you're faithful to watch over it. We thank you, Lord, that by the blood of Jesus we have been made righteous. We have been made eternally righteous because of Jesus' precious blood. 
Thank you, Father, that we have authority over the devil. That we have authority over all of his power. Thank you, Father, that we can exercise that authority by speaking your word and see the blessings of God become a reality in every part of our being and in every part of our lives. Say this after me. I am righteous by the blood of Jesus. Every tongue that rises against me in judgment, I do hereby condemn. This is my heritage as a child of God, and my righteousness is of God himself. No weapon formed against me prospers in the name of Jesus. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Let's all stand. Let's just lift our hands and thank God we are who he says we are. We bless you, Father. We thank you for sending us your word so that we can know who we are. Thank you that you change not. Thank you that you're always the same. And our nature, our spiritual nature, even your righteousness, upholds us, strengthens us, and helps us in every adversity, in every place, every trouble, every work of the devil that comes against us.